Uh, once again, welcome. Glad that you're here, uh, especially if you're visiting with us. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're in a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves in verses 35 through 37 this morning. And you can see that on page 7 of your bulletin. Our passage this morning is coming at the tail end of this series of attempts by the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious experts of that day to try to trap Jesus, to try to trip him up and corner him into saying something stupid or something outright heretical and blasphemous. They want to expose Jesus in front of the crowd as a fraud because that's the only box that they think that he fits in. He's either a liar or a lunatic. Those are the only categories that they have for Jesus in terms of what he's saying and what he's doing. Like C.S. Lewis says, at some point you've got to make a You've got to come up um, with a decision about who Jesus is. He's either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. And they had decided, and so they wanted to publicly expose Jesus in front of the crowds for being the fraud that he was. Jesus, is, he always seems to be like four steps in front of them every time. Um, he just keeps turning their questions back on them in a way that a liar or a lunatic wouldn't. <laughs> And so far in this series of exchanges, Jesus has been on the defensive. He's been the one answering the questions. But this morning in our passage, Jesus finally goes on the offensive. And he's now the one asking the question. And it's interesting. It's the only question that Jesus asks in this exchange because he lands the knockout punch. Uh, it's checkmate. It's game over after this one. The religious experts don't even try to answer and the question that Jesus asks this morning is a fascinating one because it's more like a riddle. It's more like a paradox or a conundrum, a mystery. Remember, these religious experts, they were, they were experts in the Old Testament law. They knew it like the back of their hands. And so what Jesus does is he goes to this passage that would have been very well known to them, very central to their experience, and he puts his finger on this mystery this apparent paradox that's been staring them in the face right in their own scriptures for hundreds of years. And it's not like Jesus goes to this kind of peripheral passage that's just kind of on the outskirts that admittedly everybody has a hard time understanding. No, what he does is he goes to this central passage that's a prophecy that all of the Israelites, and especially the religious experts, would have known very well. It was a foundational piece of God's word to them. And all that he does is he just reads one verse out of it, and he backs up, and he says, now what do you do with that? Explain that. It's a riddle. It's a mystery that's at the heart of one of the central passages of the Old Testament. But what we're going to hear Jesus saying this morning is that it's only a riddle. It's only a paradox because the box that you're trying to put me in is way too small. Because you don't understand yet who I am or what I've come to do. The box that you're trying to put the true Messiah in is way too small and he won't fit there. Your expectations are way too low, way too small, because the true Messiah is much bigger and greater and more than what you can possibly imagine. He's greater than what you're expecting. His kingdom is greater than what you're hoping for even in your wildest dreams. 
See, the point here that Jesus is making is there's only one box that the true Messiah can fit in, and it's the biggest one imaginable. And brothers and sisters and friends, inevitably, we come into worship this morning trying to fit Jesus in some kind of box. With, we, we shape our expectations and our hopes and our longings and what we expect Jesus to be and how we expect him to act in our life in this world. Inevitably, our boxes tend to shrink him down into somebody less than he actually is. And Jesus just never stays in those small boxes that we tend to put him in. And so what he wants to do this morning is dismantle those small boxes that we might be trying to contain him in and show us again the good news of who he really is and what he's come to do because that's what our hearts really need this morning. Let's see how he does this in this passage of God's word. Mark 12, beginning in verse 35. This is God's word. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself says in the Holy Spirit, where he declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you please now by your spirit come and give us eyes to see you and give us hearts that can hear you speaking to us this morning, reminding us of who you are, what you've done and what you're doing. Oh Lord, let your light shine abroad in our hearts, dispel the darkness and give us the grace to be able to see you as you really are and to respond in faith. And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So in our passage this morning, Jesus is now the one asking the questions. He's on the offensive, and the question that he asks, like we said, it's more of a riddle. It's a paradox. It's this conundrum. Um, And what we're going to see as we move through this passage this morning is that Jesus is claiming to be the answer to this riddle. He's claiming to be the answer to this paradox. And notice I didn't say that he's claiming to have the answer. He's claiming to be the answer. He's claiming to be the one that unlocks this mystery that's at the heart of the Old Testament, that's been staring at them, staring the religious experts and God's people in the face for hundreds of years. He's claiming not to to have the resolution, to come with an answer. He's claiming to be the resolution himself. The resolution to what looks like a paradox that's right square in the middle of this prophecy that was dealing with what every Israelite hoped for and longed for the most. Well, what is this riddle? What is this this paradox that Jesus is claiming to be the resolution to? Well, notice it has to do with this prophecy that's found in the book of Psalms. Jesus quotes it, just one line out of Psalms, and it's Psalm 110. It's a psalm that's written by King David, And it's what we call a royal psalm or a coronation psalm. We don't know exactly, but most scholars guess that David probably wrote this psalm like on the occasion for when his son Solomon was going to be crowned king after him. 
This psalm may have been read in those kinds of royal atmospheres, like in the throne room when the new king of Israel is crowned king. We don't know exactly, but we do know that Psalm 110 was written by King David and that the main subject of the psalm, what the psalm is about, is the king of Israel. That's the main subject of the psalm that Jesus quotes. Except, here's the thing. As you read this psalm, and you can go back and read it later today. I encourage you to do it. As you, go, as you read through Psalm 110, the more you read, the more you get the impression that David is not talking about an ordinary, normal person, an ordinary, normal king. He's not talking about somebody that's in the room. <laughs> he's not talking about himself, and he's not talking about his son. He can't be with the language that he's using here. In Psalm 110. And so you start to ask, well, who is this that David is talking about? And this is how Psalm 110 starts. It, it starts with, with King David overhearing this cosmic divine conversation, this dialogue between two speakers. It's like, it's like David picks up the phone, an old landline, and he hears two other people talking on the landline uh, on the other end. He's, he's eavesdropping in on God. And this is what he hears. It's the line that Jesus quotes in verse 36. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That's the dialogue that, that, that David eavesdrops in on and overhears. And in Hebrew, there's two speakers. Well, I mean, in, in, the, in the passage, there's, there's two speakers. There's speaker number one and there's speaker number two. Speaker number one is the Lord who's doing the speaking. And in, in Hebrew, um, the word there that's used is the covenant name of the God of Israel, Yahweh or Jehovah. That's speaker number one. That's the Lord who's doing the speaking. And Yahweh, speaker number one, is addressing another character, another figure, who is my Lord. Now, granted, this is kind of confusing in our English text because they, it's, it looks the same. The Lord said to my Lord. It's the same English word, but in Hebrew, it's two different words. Um, in the original language, the, the, the word that's used number two, or the person who's receiving the address, is Adonai, a Hebrew word for Lord or sovereign king, master, Lord. So notice, it's really interesting. Already in our service this morning, we've run across these two words in our worship service. Our Psalm 8 served as our call to worship this morning, and you notice how it begins. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, in, in English, that's how it, it reads, but in Hebrew, this is how it reads. O Yahweh, our Adonai. Two different words, both applied to God. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament. The personal name of God and then the title of God. O Yahweh, our Adonai. So, so listen, listen to what King David is saying. He's saying that he's overhearing this divine cosmic conversation where both names are used, but they're referring to two, to two separate people, to two different characters. Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. Now here's the mystery. 
Here's the riddle. It was already widely accepted by Jesus' day that speaker number two here in Psalm 10, the person that David calls my Lord, it was already widely accepted that this was a prophecy that had to do with the Messiah, with the son of David, with this promised future king that was going to come from David's line and sit on David's throne and restore David's kingdom. But here's the riddle. Here's the mystery. It's exactly what Jesus says in verse 37. David calls him Lord. So then how is he his son? In other words, how can the Messiah who comes after David also be at the same time the Messiah that David himself says is before David? And Jesus just kind of plops that down and says, put that in your theological pipes and smoke on it a little while. Figure that out. What do you do with this? Because you see, in that day, especially in the deeply patriarchal culture of the Old Testament, sons were never superior to their fathers, ever. The river always flowed in one direction, from father to son. Sons never had priority over their fathers. And the father that we're talking about in this case is King David himself. This is, this is King David. He represents the pinnacle of the Israelite dynasty. Like, he's the high watermark. He's the gold standard. King David represents the glory days of Israel, the golden years when, when God's people had peace in the promised land and they were ruled, out, ruled over by a man after God's own heart. These were the glory days, the golden years that all of God's people looked back on. And all of their hopes and dreams were bound up in this promise that somebody would come from David's line and bring that back and restore it. And they had every reason to expect that, that somebody would come from David, a son of David, and restore the kingdom of David and defeat Israel's enemies and rule like David again. You see, King David... He's the standard. He's the, he's the pinnacle. He's the pattern that they're expecting um, is going to set the shape and the tone for the Messiah, David's son. And that's why this is so puzzling. That's why this doesn't make much sense. Because here's King David calling someone who comes after him, one of his sons, somebody in his own family tree, Lord, Adonai. Master, sovereign. Here's King David saying, Someone else, someone greater, someone superior to me is coming. Someone is coming after me that actually comes before me. There's someone downstream from me in my family tree that actually is upstream from me. Quote David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? You see how, how Jesus is ratcheting up the tension here. Think about it like this. Jesus, this is another way to, to understand the question that Jesus is asking. He's saying when it comes to David, to King David, and to the son of David, the Messiah, who's playing first fiddle and who's playing second fiddle? Who's first chair in the orchestra? Some of you musical types would probably be able to give this illustration better than me, but 
um, I'll try my best. Apparently, in, in every orchestra, there's, this, there's a person called the choir master or the first chair in the violin section. And the first chair, this, the choir master, is the person, he or she is not the conductor, um, but in terms of skill and rank and priority in the orchestra, they're just below the conductor. Um, and the first chair is usually the most talented violinist. He or she sits closest to the audience so that you can hear that violin louder than anybody else. Um, and the first chair in the orchestra um, has, has priority, has supremacy. He or she is, is the alpha musician in the orchestra, okay? They call the shots, musically speaking. And here's what's really interesting. You know that moment at the beginning of the orchestra when, when all the musicians are kind of tuning up their instruments and it sounds like complete chaos? Everybody playing a different note at the same time. You know what they're doing? They're all tuning their instruments to be in tune with the first chair. The first chair plays a note and everybody else comes in and tunes their instruments to the first chair, to the to, to first chair, to the choir master. Now, the second chair, the person who's playing second fiddle, he or she may, might be a world-class musician. They might be really good, but they're not first chair. They answer to the first chair. They're subordinate. They tune up to first chair and not vice versa. Now, keep that in mind. And here's what Jesus is asking. He's saying when it comes to King David and to David's son, who's first chair? Who's first chair in the orchestra of redemption that God has been playing ever since day one? In the orchestra of redemptive history, in the music that God has been playing in history to bring and to save a people for himself, in that orchestra, who's first chair? Who's the alpha musician? <laughs> um, who tunes up to who? Because, see, look, here's why this is really important. Because if King David is first chair in the orchestra of God's redemption, then, then we pretty much know what his son is going to be like and what his kingdom is going to be like. Because his son, the Messiah, is just going to tune up to David. Okay? And so if King David is first chair, then we know what to expect. We can expect a human king who's going to rule over a physical, geopolitical kind of kingdom somewhere in the Middle East, and his throne is going to be somewhere in Jerusalem, and, um, and he's going to fight against his enemies with swords and spears, and his enemies are going to be real obvious because they're going to be the non-Israelites, okay? So if King David is first chair and the Messiah, his son, is tuning up to him, then we know what to expect. We know pretty much what he's going to be like and what his kingdom is going to be like because that's what David was. Um, and here's what, here's what that sets us up to believe. It sets us up to expect that he's going to be strong and he's going to be mighty and he's going to be noticeable. And he's going to be successful and famous and rich. And he's going to win. He's going to win in all the ways that the world counts winning. And he's going to win so much that you're just going to get tired of winning. 
because he's come to restore the glory days of God's people. He's come to bring back the years of the reign of the first chair in the orchestra. He's come to bring that back. That's what you would expect out of a Messiah who's playing second fiddle, who's playing second chair in the orchestra of redemption. That's what you would expect, and that's why they completely missed Jesus. That's why they could stare Jesus in the face and not know who they were looking at. That's why they could hear him speak and not listen, because he didn't fit in their box. He wasn't what they were expecting. Jesus did not look at all like who they were looking for. He wasn't strong and mighty and noticeable and famous and rich. He was humble and and gentle and meek and, and insignificant and poor. Like Isaiah says, he had no form or majesty that we would look on him. He had no beauty that anybody would desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he didn't win in all the ways that the world counts and values winning. In fact, his life was one big downward trajectory towards the biggest defeat that you can imagine. Hanging naked and bloody on a cross. It didn't look like winning. You see, they missed him because they didn't hear what King David had been shouting from the rooftops so clearly this whole time for hundreds of years from Psalm 110 that he's not first chair in the orchestra, that his son is. You see, King David has been saying this whole time, the Messiah is not a part of my story. I'm a part of the Messiah's story. (laughs) My son is my Lord. My son is first chair. He's greater than me. And he's different than me because he comes before me. And he's above me. He's my Lord. And I'm just, I'm just a shadow and a hint and a foretaste of what he's going to be like. And my kingdom, even at its very best and at its highest, is just a taste, a hint, a shadow of what my son's kingdom is going to be like. You see, Jesus is saying, I'm first chair in the orchestra, in the music that God has been playing this whole time. David is only second fiddle. <laughs> He's saying, I'm the son of David, and, but that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of my true identity because I'm actually a far greater son of a far greater father. I am the son of God before I was ever the son of David. You see, Jesus is saying, I don't play in David's orchestra. I don't play in David's orchestra of redemption. He plays in my orchestra. He points forward to me. David's a part of my story. I don't point backwards to him. He points forward to me. And because I'm first chair in the orchestra of, this, of God's redemption, it means that I'm a different kind of Messiah than you're looking for and than you're expecting. A different kind of person, and I'm going to rule over a different kind of kingdom. 
I want to go down those two trails in the remainder of our time this morning. This claim that Jesus is saying, I'm the first chair in the orchestra, which means I'm a different kind of person reigning over a different kind of kingdom. Jesus says, I'm a different kind of person. I'm not, a, I'm not going to be a human king like David. I am the eternal, divine Son of God who was eternally before David. Imagine this. Jesus is saying, I formed King David in his mother's womb. And my heart was drawn to him long before his heart was drawn to me. I wrote the music that David would play in the orchestra. It's so astounding when you think of it like this. Jesus is saying, I have I dove down into David's family tree from the outside. C.S. Lewis loves to use the, the language when he talks about the incarnation, when he talks about the Son of God, the, the divine, eternal Son of God becoming a human being. He loves to use the language of, of, of Jesus being the author of the story who has written himself into his own story as one of the characters. But that's the distance and the gap that, that Jesus traveled. But I want to invite you to, to use the language and the imagery that's, um, that, that's here and in other places in the Bible to think about it like this. I don't know if you've noticed it, but we have a tree outside uh, on this corner of the church, and it is dead as a doornail. I don't know what happened to it, but that thing is dead. Um, and it ain't coming back. Now, we could try to make it come back. Um, let's, say that, let's say we go and find the greatest gardener with the greenest thumb in the whole world. And we invite him to come and do whatever it takes to bring this tree back. That person, that gardener, the greatest one of all, he might try to pour water on it, might try to pour fertilizer on it, do whatever it takes. But he might not be able to bring it back if it's sick, if it's dead. Jesus, though, I want to invite you to think of Jesus as the greatest gardener who, in order to come save this family tree of King David, this line of his people in the world, the greatest gardener comes and becomes a part of the tree in order to bring life and healing to what was sick and dead. The gardener becomes a part of the tree. He writes himself into King David's family tree, into our family tree, in order to bring life and healing to what was dead. The gardener becomes the seed. In the language of Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You see, there it is. That's the language of someone from the outside, the gardener, bringing himself into the story, writing himself into the family tree to redeem what seemed irredeemable, to bring hope to what was lost. And you know what that means, brothers and sisters and friends? You know what this means about the kind of Savior that Jesus is? It means that he's the kind of Savior that doesn't just lob salvation and redemption from a distance. He, 
Maybe he could have, but maybe our family tree was so dead that it wouldn't have helped. And so he doesn't just lob help from a distance, but he comes all the way into our story, all the way into our brokenness and our shame and our experience. He writes himself into our family tree so that he can taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end, so that by his life he can bring us gladness our redeemer and shepherd and friend. You see, because he's the son of David, he's written himself into our family tree, but but because he's the son of God, he can actually heal it. He can actually restore and redeem what is so broken and irredeemable. The story of this world and the story of our lives. That's the kind of savior that he is. Jesus is saying, because I'm first fiddle, because I'm first chair in the orchestra, I'm a different kind of savior than you've been expecting, far greater than anything that David led you to imagine. But also, secondly, the kingdom that I've come to bring, the kingdom that I've come to rule over is far greater than the kingdom of David. It's not going to be a physical, geopolitical kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom... That's a spiritual reign in the hearts and lives of my people, Jesus is saying. And it's going to transcend borders. And it's going to break down dividing walls. He's saying, my kingdom is not going to advance like King David's did with swords loud clashing and the roll of stirring drums like the hymn says. No, but with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom will come. You see, Jesus came to establish a kingdom that doesn't advance with power and strength like King David's did, but it advances in weakness and dependence. And entrance into his kingdom doesn't come with achieving and striving. It actually comes with admitting that all of your achieving and striving won't get you in. You see, it's this upside-down, inside-out kind of kingdom where you actually gain your life by losing it. And you get wealthy by giving your wealth away. It's the kind of kingdom where the strongest ones are the ones who know that they're the weakest. It's the kind of kingdom where picking up your cross daily and following after Jesus is the path to joy and life and freedom. It's the path of the cross. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate, to bring and to reign over. And you see, it's the kind of kingdom that's not going to restore the glory days of old, the golden years of King David, because Jesus has a much grander golden year in view. It's the golden years that were far before King David. The golden years where God reigned and lived with his people in a perfect world. Where he walked with them. Where there was no sin and no shame and no brokenness. That's the golden years that this Messiah has come to bring. That he's come to restore. And you know how he'll do it? He'll do it by sitting at God's right hand, at his Father's right hand, until he puts his enemies under his feet. 
This is the language that Jesus quotes. He hears his father say to him, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Until. If I was writing the story, I don't think I would write it that way. I would have said, sit at my right hand because right now I'm going to put all your enemies under your feet and no one will have to wait and there won't be any confusion and there won't be any more pain. But the father says, sit at my right hand, rule and reign right now until. Y'all, we live in the great until. We live in the great until and, it's, and it can hurt. The great until where we wait, where God rules and reigns through his son, and yet the world is still a very dangerous place. Where your friends can get sick and die. Where you can hurt people and where people can hurt you. Where your heart can break and stay broken for a long time. Life in the great until can hurt, but that's our zip code right now. That's our address. And Jesus is inviting us to keep our eyes on him as we keep living and following him in this great until. And y'all, we can trust a Savior like this. We can trust a Savior as we live in the great until who is ruling and reigning over all things and will one day put all of his enemies under his feet. You know why you can trust him? You can trust him because of this scene that we see at the end of Mark, in Mark chapter 15. Jesus is hanging up bloody and naked on a cross. And this Roman centurion, this Roman soldier, if anybody was the enemy, it was this guy. And he literally has Jesus' blood on his hands because he might have just nailed the Messiah's feet and hands to the cross. And Mark says that as he's hanging there, the centurion walks up before him under the feet of Jesus. And he looks at him and he says, surely this was the Son of God. The enemy coming under the feet of Jesus and he's not being condemned. Jesus is. The enemy, under the feet of Jesus, and he's not the one being judged. He is. Because you see, Jesus came, Jesus came to put the greatest enemy of all under his feet. Death itself. What separates you from him Jesus came to die to put that enemy under his feet so that his other enemies, you and me, could sit at his feet as his children. Paul writes in Romans 5 that we were the enemies. While we were, while we were enemies, we have been reconciled to God by the death of his son. You can trust a God like that. You can trust a king like that who sits at God's right hand right now, ruling and reigning over the great until. You can trust a God like that by keeping your eyes on him. We'll close with this. As we see, as we see the author of Hebrews write this, he says, at present, 
we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We still live in the great until. But then he says this, but we see him. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Keep your eyes on him as you follow him in this great until. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would stir our affections for you, you who are the great son of God and son of David. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see you and to see how who you are and what you're doing has everything to do with our experience right now, no matter where our hearts are, no matter what might be burdening us or breaking our hearts, that the good news of who you are and what you're doing is the greatest news that we could ever hear. Lord Jesus, help us to keep our eyes on you as you keep our eyes, your eyes on us. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.